The following message is brought to you by the CD ministry of Rancho Baptist Church. This message by Pastor Matt Shia was recorded during our regular morning worship service. Pastor Matt is the senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Well, filling in for Pastor Matt today is our discipleship pastor, Lou Dawson. And today he's talking about God's servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. So open your Bibles there and let's join Pastor Lou. Well, this morning we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that has been characterized by many as the the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy. And I suspect that Isaiah 53 is is actually a pretty familiar passage with uh, many of you. And I was familiar with it and actually thought that I knew it pretty well myself, silly me, until I actually began to sit down and really study it pretty well. And in these studies, I have gained a whole new appreciation for the extravagant length to which the Lord went to in order to save me. And I've experienced a profound sorrow as I have more fully understood the extent and the horror of my own sin. And I stood in awe beholding the panoramic view of the Lord's redemptive plan as it's revealed in the scriptures with the servant of the Lord at the heart of it. And my desire is this morning that in some measure the Lord might encourage you with some of these same realizations as we explore this truly amazing passage of Scripture together. And the title of this morning's sermon is The Servant of the Lord Revealed. And our text is Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. But before we dive into our text today, it's really critical that we understand some background information. The book of Isaiah is very interesting in that in the first 39 chapters of the book, Isaiah prophesied about judgment that was coming upon apostate Judah and the nations that were around them. And indeed, these judgments did come upon them in the form of the Babylonian captivity. You may remember that. But they came about 100 years after this book was actually written. Now, starting in Isaiah chapter 40... The book takes a very interesting twist. And from Isaiah 40 through the end of the book, the prophecies address Judah as though the Babylonian captivity was already a present reality. And in these chapters, Isaiah is actually addressing a people in captivity that are looking forward to going back to Israel. Now keep in mind, too, that the entire book of Isaiah was written some 700 years before Jesus was even born. Also, our text in Isaiah 53 is actually the last of four major passages where this servant of the Lord character appears. And the key question that has been disputed for many years among Jews and Christians alike is, who is the servant? And the answer is really not as straightforward as you might seem. Most Orthodox Jews today would contend that the servant is actually Israel. And he is clearly identified as the nation of Israel in one of the major passages here. And also a few of the, a few of the verses that go along with it. But in the other three major passages about the servant, he is clearly identified as someone other than Israel. 
And in fact, in the passage that we're going to look at today, in Isaiah 53, verse 8, he clearly speaks of the servant of the Lord as somebody who is distinct from Israel. The key point to understand here is that you really have to discern the identity of who this guy is from the individual passage that you looked at. Now, regarding the passage today in Isaiah 52 and 53, all the New Testament writers affirm that the servant of the Lord is Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. Quoting Isaiah 53, verse 1, here is what the Apostle John said. He said, But though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Isaiah 53, 1, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And even Jesus himself indicated that Isaiah 53 referred to him. In Luke chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus tells his disciples that Isaiah 53, 12 referred to him. For I, Jesus, tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. There's that verse from Isaiah. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Now, actually, Isaiah 53 is really the climax of the four servant of the Lord poems that occur in this book. And that's exactly what it is. It's a poem. Now, most people today are not really familiar with with English poetry. How many of you guys are really, really familiar with English poetry? Well, there's a few of you out there. That's good. I'm glad to see that. Well, guess what? Hebrew poetry, I'm sure you're probably not even nearly as familiar with. In Hebrew poetry, unlike English poetry, it's a little different. It rhymes thoughts, not words. So it's a little bit different. But most of you are familiar with movies, right? You've watched a few movies in your time. Well, good. And that's good because in some ways, movies are very similar to poetry. And with that in mind, and in order to aid in understanding this passage of Scripture, we're going to look at this five stanza poem as a five-scene movie. Okay? Now, one of the techniques used in movies is that while the initial credits are shown, the film presents the background of the story. And a lot of times with these films, without this background, you're totally lost for the rest of the movie. Well, with the Servant of the Lord passage in Isaiah 53, it also has a background scene. And if you miss it, you cannot understand the rest of the story. So let's roll the credits and look at the script for the background scene, which is found in Isaiah 52 verses 7 through 12, Isaiah 52, 7 through 12. Read along with me. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. So as the credits are rolling in our movie, we see this wide-angle picture of a mass of people. The people of Israel, as they're all returning to Jerusalem. Now Isaiah further describes this return. He says, Break forth, shout joyfully together, use waste places of Jerusalem. 
For the Lord has comforted his, his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, remember that Isaiah's words were prophetically written in this section to his people who were in captivity, looking forward to being restored to the land of Israel. Now, with that in mind, and this is a tough question, do you notice something rather odd about this description that we just read here of Israel returning back to captivity? Anything odd that you notice about that? Anyone notice anything odd there? Well, like I said, this is a tough question. But the return from captivity described in this passage doesn't really match what happened. Now, you remember when, I, when they returned, when the people of Israel returned from captivity from Babylon, it's talked about in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And what was that return characterized by? Hardship and toil and all the persecution that Nehemiah faced with all the enemies, and they had to work hard, and there was just a little bit of joy intermingled in there. Now, what this passage does describe is the incredible joy of the Jewish people in their ultimate return from among the nations. And thus, Isaiah is prophetically speaking of the final return of the Jewish people to Israel at the end of the tribulation period. So the introductory event that we're seeing as the credits roll in our movie is actually the return of Israel to Zion at the beginning of the millennium. And this piece of information is really critical to understanding the rest of our Servant of the Lord film. And with this piece of information, we now grasp that the entire rest of the movie is going to be cast in the context of end times. And now with the credits in the background scene concluding, the movie fades to scene one. Now read along with me the script for the first scene in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Now the first word here, behold, is, it's actually quite important. And this Hebrew word is the word hina, and it has two very specific and important implications, actually whenever you see it in the Old Testament. And the first, the word signifies that the author is focusing in on an event, a place, or a person that is a part of the larger story. And second, the word lets you know that the author is providing some very significant information that's important for you to understand the rest of the story. So getting back to our movie, 
from the introductory scene showing these masses of Jews as, they, as they're streaming back joyfully to the nation of Israel, the cameraman zooms in on one very important person that's part of this throng of people, and that is the servant of the Lord. In this scene, with a close-up of the servant of the Lord on the screen, a narrator gives a summary of the significance of a servant. But there's really another important question that we have to ask here, and again, not a real easy one, as we look at the content of this scene. And that is, who's narrating? Who is it that's narrating here? You see, in contrast to the previous introductory scene, the narrator actually speaks directly of his knowledge of the servant here. Notice the very first line. He says, behold, my servant will prosper. So who do you think is narrating here? What's that? God is the one narrating here. That's exactly right. You see, actually we see this phrase, my servant, in earlier servant poems. In Isaiah 42.1, we see the Lord saying, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, the Lord says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So as the camera zooms in on the servant, the Lord is summarizing the ministry of the servant. Now let's look at what the Lord says about the servant. Look at verse 13 first, where the Lord says that the servant will prosper. He will be high and he will be lifted up and he will be greatly exalted. Now what kind of person does this sound like the Lord is describing here? High and exalted and greatly lifted up. He's a king. He's describing a king. That's who he's describing. And the Lord is describing him as an exalted king. And second, notice in verse 14 that the Lord describes the appearance of the servant as marred and, or disfigured to the point of evoking astonishment in people who see him. And the servant was grotesquely mutilated and hideous to look at. And in verse 15, the Lord goes on to say, the servant would sprinkle many nations. Now in the Old Testament, who was it that performed the act of sprinkling? priests did. The priests were. You see, it was the priests who did that. And in fact, this very same Hebrew word is used in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, about the sprinkling of blood. The priest shall also sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. And notice what the Lord says about this in verse 15. Thus the servant will sprinkle many nations. You see, the marring and disfiguring of the servant would be the means by which this sprinkling of blood as an offering would occur. Also notice who was sprinkled. Many nations, many goyim. And this sprinkling was for, was for all men. Jews and Gentiles alike. 
So who is this servant that the camera has zoomed in on? The Lord himself tells us that the servant is a king. He is a sin sacrifice, a slaughtered sin offering, and he's a priest all in one. Now at the end of verse 15, the camera, it shifts off of the servant and onto the expression of faces of a group of Gentile rulers as they behold the servant and who he truly is. And the rulers, they, they, they cover their mouths in amazement. They stand there utterly speechless. They realize that they have completely misjudged the true identity of the servant. But now they understand. Now the movie shifts away in scene two from the astonished Gentile rulers to a whole new picture as we move forward into scene two. Read along with me in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, as we looked at the script for the second scene. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Notice, first of all, that the camera has shifted over to a group of people within those returning back from exile to Jerusalem. And this group is now speaking directly to the camera. And the group starts out asking, who has believed our message? Now, based on what we've read here, who do you think, who do you think that this group might be? Any thoughts? Who do you think this group might be? Well, the group speaking to the camera, they are Israelites confessing that they misjudge the appearance of the servant. Remember, that's the group that's returning to, to Israel, are Israelites, and that's who these people are. And the clue that unlocks this conclusion is at the end of verse 3. Notice the last line here. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. You see, at the servant's first coming, the leaders among the Jews, they utterly rejected Jesus. They despised him. They were looking for a Messiah to come to be their king so that he would cast out all the Romans. But Jesus was, he was nothing like that. He was a, a dirt poor man. He was homeless. He was from an insignificant family from a backwards little village that was a long way removed from Jerusalem. He looked utterly common, and therefore the Jews, Jewish leaders, they actually despised him. But the Jews that are returning back to Israel in our movie, they're standing front and center before the camera. They're confessing something very, very different. They're essentially saying, yes, like our forefathers, we despised and disrespected the servant. We judged him based on his appearance. But now we understand who the servant truly is. And we are deeply sorry that we have misjudged him. This group of repentant Jews also 
confesses other things that they realized about the servant. Look with me at verse 2. First, they confess that they now understand that the Lord himself had his eye on the servant and was watching over him. They didn't think that was true. And second, they elaborate on how they misjudged the appearance of the servant. He looked utterly insignificant, like a little bitty root, a little bitty sprig that comes out of the ground. You, you can't even hardly see it. And he didn't have any majesty, and he didn't really look like a king. He was utterly common. And at his crucifixion, the servant looked like one from men whom hide their faces. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with the grief of sin. And remember the Gentiles, the, the Gentile rulers that we saw back in chapter 52, verse 15? Remember as they covered their mouths as they realized that they had completely misjudged the identity of the servant? Well, this group of returning Jews is repentantly confessing exactly the same thing. They didn't get it either, but they get it now. Now in scene three, the camera shifts to just a little bit different angle, but it's still focused on the same group of repentant Jews. And in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, the same group continues their confession. Read along with me. Verses 4 through 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening from our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we're healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fail on him. Now in these verses we see Israelites confessing that they also misjudge the suffering of the servant. First, notice that these Jews clarify that they now understand what was happening to the servant. In, in Hebrew, in verse 4, verse 4 is constructed so that the pronouns our and we are deliberately emphasized. And if we read verse 4 in English, like it was actually written in Hebrew, here's what it would sound like. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You see, this group of Jews that is standing before our camera is, is they're, they're very ashamed. Their heads are hanging a little bit as they confess this. See, they originally thought that the servant was suffering for his own sins. But to their shame, they now realize that the servant was paying for their sins. Notice in verse 4 that word bore, surely our griefs he himself bore. Well, these repentant Jews very deliberately pick this word. It's the same Hebrew word used in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 21 and 22. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. The goat shall bear, and there's that word, on itself all their iniquities 
to a solitary land. And this passage of scripture that we just looked at here, this describes the scapegoat that bore all the sins of the people of Israel. You see, the Jews now remorsefully realize that the servant was their scapegoat, and he actually bore their sins. Now, second in verse 5, these Israelites confess that they now can understand the extent of the servant's suffering for their sin. Notice that they now know that the servant was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And this word for pierced has it behind the idea of it as phys- intense physical suffering under the point of death, the kind of suffering that you would have if you were crucified. And the word for crushed has the idea behind of it intense emotional and mental suffering, again, to the point of death. You see these repentant Jews realize that the Lord mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually destroyed the servant to pay for their sins. The servant was a substitutionary sacrifice, the Lamb of God that bore their sins and paid the price for them, for their own sinfulness. He took their sins on himself and gave them, in exchange, his righteousness. Now third, in verse 6, these remorseful Jews confess that they now understand the extent of their own sinfulness. They realize that they've all sinned and rebelled against the Lord, and they realize that this sin, this rebellion, is what the Lord paid for, and this is why the servant died. As we move on into scene four, the camera shifts from a group of Jews, the Jews that are returning from Zion, and to a close-up of a solitary figure testifying about the servant. Look with me at Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9, as this solitary figure testifies. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who has considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with rich men in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now, any guesses on who the person testifying here about the servant might be? And this is not an easy, easy question. Any thoughts? Well, I'll give you a hint. It's, uh, it actually is Isaiah. And the critical clue here is in the latter half of verse 8, where the narrator comments, he says, For the transgressions of my people. The narrator, narration has actually changed from we, in verses 1 through 6, to my in verses 7 through 9. And in scene 4, Isaiah describes the mission of the servant. First notice in verse 7 that Isaiah likens the servant's mission to that of a sacrificial lamb being led to the slaughter. 
And indeed, the Apostle John echoes this imagery when he records the words of John the Baptist. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus, the servant, coming to him and said, Behold, look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Second notice at the end of verse 8, that Isaiah agrees with the testimony of the repentant Israelites, that the servant died for the sins of his own people. He said, he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. And third, notice in the end of verse 9 that Isaiah testifies that the servant was completely innocent. He'd done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was a perfect, sinless sacrifice. Also notice how precisely Isaiah draws the attention to the details surrounding the servant's death. He, had, he was silent before his accusers, and indeed Jesus was silent before his accusers. And he also predicted that Jesus's the servant's death would be a sign with the wicked man, but he would eventually be buried in a rich man's tomb, and that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Now as we transition into scene five, the camera kind of pulls back just a little bit, just a little bit, but it's still focused on Isaiah testifying. But midway through Isaiah's testimony here, another person joins him on camera and actually concludes the testimony in his own words. Look with me at Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot with him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with transgressors, but he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Well, any guesses on who joins Isaiah midway through and concludes his testimony? Any guesses? What's that? Yes, it's God himself. And the key clue is in the middle of verse 11. Notice in this verse that the speaker refers to the servant as my servant. Now we've seen before that the Lord is the one who refers to his servant in that way. Now in verse 10, we know that Isaiah is still testifying because he says, but the Lord was crushed, was pleased to crush his servant. The Lord himself seems to step into the picture and begin testifying in verse 11. So in scene 5, Isaiah and the Lord again summarize the ministry of the servant. Let's look for a minute at Isaiah's concluding summary of the ministry of the servant. Notice in verse 10 that Isaiah says it was the Lord's plan to crush his servant. You see, the Jews may have delivered Jesus up to be executed, and the Romans may have actually performed the execution, but it was God's plan to literally crush and destroy his servant. And Isaiah tells us in verse 10 why the Lord destroyed his servant. 
the Lord put the servant to death as a guilt offering. And in saying this, Isaiah again was pointing back to the Mosaic law in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy thing, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock. And you see, this is what the servant was. He was a guilt offering sacrifice for the sins of the people. Notice in verse 10 that the, that the servant will see his offspring and prolong his days. In other words, the servant will see the results of his offering for a long time. Translation, in order for the servant to see the results of his sacrifice, he'll have to be resurrected from the dead, right? Then the servant will then, his days will be prolonged as he reigns forever. Now, midway through the concluding scene, the Lord steps into the picture and gives his concluding summary of the servant in verses 11 through 12. First, notice what the Lord calls the servant, the righteous one. And notice what the righteous one did. He justified the many by bearing, and there's that word again, their sin. And this is a beautiful picture of what happened at the cross. You see, our sin was transferred onto Jesus as he died on the cross so that his righteousness could be transferred to us. He got our sin, we got his righteousness. What a trade that was. And that is how we are justified. So now at verse 12, the camera fades to a close-up of the servant again with the Lord continuing to speak about the servant. Notice what the Lord says about him in closing. I will lot with him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils of war with the strong. In other words, the servant will be a victorious king. He bore the sins of many. Again, the servant will be a sin sacrifice. And the servant interceded for transgressors. In other words, the servant will be a priest. The servant is a mighty king, a sin offering, and a priest. Sound familiar? Yep. It was exactly the same summary of the servant that the Lord gave at the very beginning of our movie. And as the closing credits begin to roll on our movie, we realize that the Lord wants us to make sure without any doubt that we understand who the servant really is. He's a king. He is a sin sacrifice and a priest. So the credits continue to run and we're kind of left in quiet contemplation here. The only question remaining is how should we apply what we've just seen? And I'd like to suggest three applications in the form of questions. The first question is, have you misjudged the servant? You know, maybe like the repentant Israelites in our Servant of the Lord movie, for the first time, maybe you realize who the servant, Jesus Christ, really is. 
And maybe like these Israelites, you have gone astray and turned to your own way. This is what the Bible calls sin. And as the Israelites admit, we've all done it. There's a price attached to our sin. You know the hideous death that our servant died in our movie? That's the price. And either you can pay for it, that same price for all eternity, or you can turn from your sin and put your faith in the servant Jesus who bore your sin and paid for it himself. And the choice is yours. And if you've not taken care of this issue and put your faith in Christ, don't leave this place today until you get that done. Come talk to me. And let's get this issue put to rest once and for all. The second question is, if you're already a Christian and have put your faith in the servant Jesus, do you understand the significance of the servant's sacrifice? Do you understand the horror of what sin really is? The Lord literally destroyed his own son to pay for yours and my sin. This is how hideous sin really is. And maybe for the first time you understand why sin so deeply grieves the Holy Spirit whenever we sin. And maybe today as you consider the wrath poured out by the Father on His Son, you understand why continuing to live in sin is absolutely unthinkable. And equally important, do you understand the the unmeasurable vastness of the Lord's love for you? You see, the Lord's destruction of his own son demonstrated his love for us beyond any doubt. And the servants Jesus loved us so much that he allowed himself to be slaughtered so that we could be restored to fellowship with him. And oh, my Christian brothers and sisters, don't ever doubt the love of Christ for us. It was forever demonstrated by the servant on the cross. And lastly, as Christian, are you exalting the servant? You know, at the beginning and the end of our movie, both, we see the Lord himself exalting the servant. And this is obviously very, very important. And even throughout all eternity, the servant will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, exalted by all of heaven. You see, we must exalt the servant each and every day. We must exalt him by living to please him instead of living to please ourselves must exalt him every day by reminding of ourselves of his great love for us and praising him for that love. You know, and even today at this, at this very same worship service here, we must exalt him. We just must do that. See, and we do well to practice exalting him for the book of Revelation gives us a preview of the eternal heavenly exaltation of the servant. Then I, John, looked, and I heard the voice 
of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings forever. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, servant of the Lord, Messiah and King, we exalt you today. We praise you that in obedience to the Father, you suffered and died in our place, absorbing the full wrath of the Father that was due us. We now more than, more than ever fully understand the true horror of our sin and also your great love for us that motivated you to save us. Lord Jesus, our servant, we love you and we purpose in our hearts to serve you and honor you from this day forward. And we pray this in your exalted name. Hey, if you've been blessed in any way by today's broadcast, we'd love to hear from you. Why don't you drop us a line at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org and you can email any one of the staff members that are there. Or you can even call us at area code 951-676-2911. We just pray that you've been touched today and we pray that God blesses you in your walk with Him. Have a great day in the Lord.